0: See you next time.
1: Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of You Don't Need to Know Me, a song by the three-piece indie rock band New Moons, based in Cincinnati, Ohio. New Moons is our featured musical artist this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast We'll tell you a little bit more about the band, where to see them play, how to find their music, and we'll play the rest of that song for you. right now it's time to throw another log on that fire campers we've got a mystery to explore i'm your co-host steve yoder and with me is our researcher and storyteller paula schleiss an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the akron beacon journal
2: hi everybody
1: all right so i was looking at your notes there and i saw the words Wright patterson air force base on your notes
2: Oh, yeah. Did that get you excited? Absolutely. (laughs) You know, I still remember when you talked me into joining your family for a trip to the Wright Patterson Air Force Museum years ago. And that place blew me away. It's huge. I swear it's better than any Smithsonian. I couldn't believe it was right here in Ohio. Yeah,
1: I've been to both. I've been to the Smithsonian and Wright Patterson. Which one was better? uh, Ah, Wright Patterson. Wright Patterson.
2: Yeah, seriously, if anyone has, has not been there yet, make plans. And if you're a diehard fan of planes or the military or the history of flight or the history of war or the history of space travel save two days for it I oh mean, it's, yeah you will not regret it
1: yeah you do two days and you'll probably wish you did three so if tonight's mystery is connected to Wright patterson air force base can i take a guess what it is
2: okay but you only get two words
1: all right that's easy hangar 18.
2: Ah, oh, you know it you know the first time i went to the museum we were on a shuttle bus to a hangar where air force ones were stored And, well, Wright-Patterson is huge. So real friendly-like, I asked the bus driver where Hangar 18 is. And he turns to me and he says, we've been told not to answer questions about that. (laughs) And that was it. I could not get that guy to say another word to me that entire little short shuttle ride.
1: Right. You said you had to take a shuttle. That's because the Air Force Ones are located actually on the base, and you have to cross some guards now back in the day. You used to be able to drive your car on. You have to.
2: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I, you know, I could see where his boss has probably said, "Listen, don't say anything that encourages people to go exploring areas not open to the public." But still, that response did nothing to ease my suspicions. Mm. Um, you know, just in case we have listeners unfamiliar with hangar 18, uh, I should explain this a little bit. It is in a nutshell, reportedly the federal government's storage warehouse For all things alien. If it's been found in the United States and it's alien debris, alien technology, even alien bodies, as the story goes, it's in Dayton,
1: Ohio. Stored in Dayton,
2: okay. So now the military, they've always denied that. You know, they have said many, many times. They don't have a shred of extraterrestrial evidence in their possession, let alone a hangerful of it in sure. Dayton. But, but, well, you know, the stories still persist in part because some very high-level military officers have gone on record about what they know. I mean, we're talking first-person accounts, not somebody told me that somebody else had seen something. I mean, these are people who were there when it happened. Before we get to the really juicy stuff, I need to explain a little about Wright Patterson. For instance, why would it be ground zero for the country's alien collection? Wright Patterson, um, for starters, is on the land where Wilbur and Orville Wright did some of their experimental flights. You probably knew that.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. They were—they uh, actually were in the bicycle business before they were in the flying business.
2: Yes, yes. And then when they got into the flying business, they got this big piece of land in Dayton. And they built and flew experimental flights there. They started using, it was about 84 acres there. It was known as Huffman Prairie uh, as early as 1904. And later they built a flight exhibition company and an aviation school and used that property until 1916. You want to guess what happened after 1916?
1: The military took it over?
2: Yes. Do you know why? No. World War I started. Oh. And the United States, they needed a place to train its fighter pilots. And the Wright property was probably the best established location for doing that sort of thing. So the land was transferred to the military, and that's when it became Wright Airfield. Now, eventually, it would be redubbed the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And it now employs 27,000 people. I mean, it's one of the country's largest and most complex military bases. Now, Wright-Patterson was home to three things that made it a very mysterious place. First, it was headquarters of the Air Force Materials Command. These are the folks responsible for the research and development of cutting-edge technology, how to make weapons more efficient, how to make aircraft bigger and better. I mean, these are highly classified operations going on there, so there are lots of places that are under heavy guard, open to only people with top-level clearance, the kind of place where the words top-secret get thrown around a whole lot. Second, Dayton was headquarters for the Foreign Technology Division and a project codenamed Moondust. And that, for many years, was responsible for retrieving and studying objects of unknown origin. Mostly that meant space junk, like foreign satellites and missile debris. I mean, if a country was dropping things out of the sky, the United States wanted to know what it was and whether we could learn from it. And thirdly, from 1948 to 1970, Wright-Patterson was home to Project Blue Book. That was a period in which the Air Force was responsible for responding to and investigating sightings of UFOs. Now, this was during the Cold War, so whether these mysterious sightings were going to be extraterrestrial or from an enemy country, it was something that needed scrutiny. So clearly, with Dayton being ground zero for all three of these efforts, it was never in dispute that if the government had gotten its hands on some UFO debris alien technology, or even an alien corpse or two, it would be researched, tested, and stored right here in Ohio. So what is exactly purported to be in Hangar 18? So here's, here's the good stuff. The first report of an extraterrestrial delivery to Dayton, and the most famous one, is a tale that begins in Roswell, New Mexico. It's the first week of July in 1947, in a desolate stretch of land about an hour's drive from Roswell. Several people had reported seeing a flying disc, a saucer-shaped object with lights that moved about in the sky before disappearing. It was quite the talk of the town. Mac Brazel didn't know that at first. He was a 48-year-old rancher from Lincoln County, and one day he was out checking things in his sheep pasture when he found some strange debris something that looked as if it had shattered and scattered over a large area. Well, he had recovered weather balloons on the ranch before, but this didn't look like that, he would say later. He collected a bunch of it and stored it, but didn't understand its relevance until he went into town a couple of days later. That's when he heard everyone talking about the flying saucer they'd seen the night before. So Brazzle sauntered over to the sheriff's office, pulled Sheriff George Wilcox aside, and whispered confidentially that he might have found that flying disc. The sheriff, in turn, called the nearby Roswell Army Airfield. Well, the Army, of course, was interested, and the next day they sent a couple of men to take a look. One of the men they sent was Major Jesse Marcel, the base's chief intelligence officer. Remember that name, Marcel. All
1: right, gotcha, Marcel.
2: We're going to get back to him. Anyway, the two military men collected some of the debris laying about, and they took it with them. Now, the very next day, something happens that ensures this incident is going to become legend. The Roswell Army Airfield's public relations guy was named Lieutenant Walter Hott. He had been a bombardier during World War II, and then he had become the base's liaison to the media. And Lieutenant Hunt issued this rather stunning press release. And I quote, The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force Roswell Army Airfield was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the Sheriff's Office of Chavez County. As a matter of fact, we've got the original audio of that radio report. Let's play that, Steve.
1: All right, fantastic.
3: If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History
2: at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Headline edition, July 8th, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile found sometime last week has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Late this afternoon, a bulletin from New Mexico suggested that the widely publicized mystery of the flying saucers may soon be solved. Army Air Force officers reported that one of the strange disks had been found and inspected sometime last week. Our correspondents in Los Angeles and Chicago have been in contact with Army officials endeavoring to obtain all possible late information.
2: Now, that news release went on to say the flying object had landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime the previous week and that not having phone facilities, the rancher had stored the disc until such time as he was able to contact the sheriff's office, who in turn notified Major Jesse Marcel. The news release went on to say that the disc was picked up, inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield, and then loaned by Major Marcel to higher headquarters, whatever that was. And that after that, the disc was sent on its way to Wright-Airfield in Dayton, Ohio, for inspection.
1: See, now, if it's a weather balloon, that would have been in that report.
2: Well, stay tuned. Okay. I've got something coming up about that. Okay. So, before we get to that, though, I mean, you can imagine what happens next. I mean, the, the term flying disc sounds an awful lot like flying saucer. Right. And to a layman... It sounded like the Army was confessing to having captured an alien spacecraft. So as soon as the story hit the newspapers and the radio, local, national, even international attention is immediately turned on Roswell. And after a couple of hours of nonstop ringing phones, the Army decides their initial press release had been a bit potent. And before the day was out, they issued a new message. You can see it coming. Weather balloon. The UFO was nothing more than a weather balloon. Warrant Officer Irving Newton, a forecaster at the Army Air Force's weather station, was made available to speak with media and offer very detailed interviews about how weather balloons worked and what they looked like. He described the material found by the rancher as so much tinfoil, rubber, and broken wooden beams. Well, the public relations guy who had put out that first press release, Lieutenant Hot. He was a good soldier. He was told not to share what he knew about the incident, and he didn't for the rest of his life until his death. Oh. Yeah. Turns out, in the year 2000, Lieutenant Hunt gave a private interview to two people he trusted, Wendy Connors and Dennis Balthauser, and he signed a sealed affidavit, both of which were not to be released until after he had died. Lieutenant Haught passed away in 2005, and in 2007, the interview and affidavit were published in a book called Witness to Roswell Unmasking the 60-Year Cover-Up. So here's what really happened, according to Lieutenant Haught. During the 4th of July weekend, Haught had heard reports of people seeing a flying saucer in the area. He didn't really think much more about it until July 8th, It was a Tuesday, and he had been pulled into a 7.30 a.m. staff meeting at the Roswell base. In attendance was Major Marcel, who had been sent to that ranch, and Brigadier General Roger Ramey, who had flown in for the meeting from Fort Worth, Texas. At the meeting, Haught learned the Army was investigating not one but two different debris fields related to the crash of that so-called flying saucer. Samples of the wreckage were passed around the table. He said, and here's a quote, It was unlike any material I had or have ever seen in my life. Pieces which resembled metal foil, paper thin yet extremely strong, and pieces with unusual markings along their length were handled from man to man, each voicing their opinion. No one was able to identify the crash debris. Now, one of the main concerns discussed at this meeting, Lieutenant Hot said, was whether the Army should go public. So in a strategy that Hot believed came straight from the Pentagon, General Ramey laid out their plans. The more significant debris field was 40 miles to the north, where the main part of a spacecraft was found. Less significant was the rancher's find, which was 75 miles northwest of Roswell. General Ramey said in order to divert attention from the primary debris field until the Army had collected the material, the base would issue a press release about the find at the ranch. That would send the media and the public 75 miles away from where the real show was happening. And so that's when Haught issued his initial press release about the flying disk. Now, he always claimed the words of that press release were dictated to him by Colonel William Blanchard, the base commander. When the Army decided to retract the language and call the debris a weather balloon, it was General Ramey's office in Texas that released it. Haught said later he was taken to a hangar at the Roswell base to see the debris that had been collected at the more important site. He said he saw an egg-shaped craft, about 15 feet long and 6 feet high. No windows, portholes, wings, tail section, or landing gear was visible. But that's not all he saw. There was a tarp on the ground, partially covering two small corpses. He said the heads were visible. He wasn't close enough to see facial features, but he described the heads as larger than normal. The forms beneath the tarp appeared to be child-sized, perhaps four feet in length. Hot left that hangar, convinced he had just seen two dead aliens. aliens. wow. Well, Haught said he later had an interesting discussion with Major Marcel, the head intelligence guy who had been sent to collect the debris from the ranch. He said Marcel told him when he had taken pieces of the wreckage to General Ramey's office in Fort Worth, the wreckage was taken away from him and replaced with the remains of a weather balloon and radar kite and told this would be the debris shown to the public. Haught said Marcel was very upset about that and refused to discuss it again. Lieutenant Haught made a promise to Colonel Blanchard not to share what he had seen at the Roswell hangar. Colonel Blanchard was a close personal friend, and he kept that promise throughout his life. Every time Haught was asked about the incident, He denied having seen anything and always said he had no information about what was recovered. It was only in death that his eyewitness testimony was shared. Now, I told you Hot's story, but he's only the most recent witness to share his tale. You know who else came clean about what happened in Roswell?
1: Major Marcel?
2: That's the one. I told you to remember his name. (laughs) Yeah, the first guy to the crash site. Marcel, I mean, he had good reason not to talk about what he had seen while he was still active military. He was in charge of security for atomic tests being done in the Roswell area. Ah. I mean, he was sworn to secrecy. But in retirement, he opened up in a video interview. He talked about the debris on the ranch, which he said was scattered over a mile of terrain. He described one piece of metal he picked up, about two feet wide by three feet long, He said it was as thin as the foil in a pack of cigarettes, but completely inflexible. He said he took a sledgehammer to it and couldn't dent the stuff. Well, whatever was found in Roswell, it all ended up in Dayton, Ohio. There are declassified documents that verify this. One memorandum from the Air Force dated July 8, 1947, that's the day of that Roswell staff meeting, said, quote, the object resembles a high-altitude balloon and radar reflector, but the telephonic conversation between their office and Wright Field had not borne out this belief. Disk and balloon being transported to Wright Field by special plane for examination. Well, that sounded interesting, and Roswell was—that was just the start. Over the years, there have been many accounts of UFO crashes from California to Maine, as close to Ohio as Pennsylvania where the tales ended with how the military whisked the debris away to Hangar 18. Even the year after Roswell, on March 25, 1948, in Aztec, New Mexico, a team of oil workers saw a large silver object about 100 feet in diameter just lying on the ground. It didn't look like a crash. It looked like a landing. One of the workers named Doug Nolan said he looked inside a shattered porthole and saw two bodies slumped over. As the story goes, the Army arrived, threatened the men into silence, then proceeded to recover no fewer than 16 bodies from the craft. You know where the bodies were shipped? Hangar 18. Hangar 18, Dayton, Ohio. I mean, there's no shortage to the number of people who have come forward over the years. In the 1990s, there was a secretary who said she had top security clearance at Wright-Patterson, and she shared her tales of alien bodies and strange debris. There was an Army intelligence officer from Wright-Patterson that came forward and a retired Air Force captain. I mean, you can find these people speaking in various documentaries and, and TV shows on the topic. And then there was the story of World War II U.S. Air Force pilot Marion Macruder. He was a member of the prestigious Air War College. And they were sent to Wright-Patterson to investigate materials that were brought there. Magruder and his fellow classmates were sworn to secrecy, and he kept his secrets for 50 years, even from his family. But as his health faded, he told his son, Mark Magruder, that he didn't want to die without sharing the awesome knowledge that we weren't alone in the universe. In 1997, before Marion's death, Mark said his father told him about seeing aliens at Wright-Patterson. He described them as childlike in size thin with large heads, long arms, and four digits on their hands. And he said he saw one of them alive, but not for long. He said the military accidentally killed it while conducting experiments. He also described for his son space material that looked metallic but could be balled up in a fist, then when released would snap back into its original form. Now, of course, there are alternative reports on all of this. In the 1990s, the U.S. military published two reports saying the object that crashed in Roswell was a nuclear test surveillance balloon from Project Mogul. A project, by the way, that sometimes dropped dummies from the sky in order to test theories about how bodies would be impacted from various falls. Hmm. Others have challenged that book that purports to be an interview, and affidavit from Lieutenant Haught, the public relations guy, saying the researchers had taken advantage of an old man with dementia. And Major Marcel, the guy who collected the debris from the rancher, others have come out to say he had a history of embellishment and exaggeration. For instance, that he used to claim having received five air medals for shooting down enemy planes during World War II something that had been proved false. I think you had two? I think Mm, so, yeah. Yeah. As to the Marion Magruder story, some will point out that there is no written or video evidence that Magruder had said any of those things, only testimony from his son, and that makes him a second-hand witness. Well, for every UFO researcher who is convinced Roswell was a cover-up, that alien bodies were found, and that the United States government is storing them at Wright-Patterson and Dayton, you can find a pretty convincing argument that it's all bunk.
1: When you brought up the fact that there was a couple, a couple sheets of aluminum foil, that's how thick some of that stuff was. It reminds me that there's a lot of people who have a theory that we gained how to go to space and how to land on the moon from that kind of technology. Because the Lunar Lander was said to be only as thick as a couple of sheets of aluminum Super foil back thin. in the day.
2: Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point.
1: Hmm. But yeah, I mean, if you ever get a chance, go down and check that place out. It's it's pretty fantastic. I know they have the Memphis Bell down there now, which oh. was not down there when we were there. Oh. Uh, they brought that you just
2: up. keep adding to yeah. it. It's Yeah, Apollo
1: 15's there, so okay. it's pretty cool. cool. Yeah. So worth the trip. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have an armchair detective tonight. So let's see what side they fall on.
2: With us tonight is William Haddock's. William conducts a one-man operation called the Central Ohio UFO Reporting Center, where he invites people to write in with sightings of things they can't explain, and he goes in search of an answer. He's also a regular contributor to a podcast called Paranormal Road. Hi, William. Hi. William, you've got to tell us, how did you become interested in UFOs? Did you have a personal experience?
3: I did, but that was not what initially uh, sparked my interest. Uh, Most of this goes back to when I was just a kid uh, with my grandfather, who had uh, just turned 90, actually. (laughs) Uh, But he was in the uh, uh, Army, excuse me. I spent 19 years in the National Guard and was stationed at a base that's not far from me, which is uh, Rickenbacker. It was called Lockburn Air Base at that time. You're, this in, was around... you're in
2: Pickaway County, right?
3: Correct. Okay, got it. And this was during the the Korean War era and shortly after. He was always, like I said, stateside. But he had always told me the story that once he had got a little higher rank, he ended up being a staff sergeant. Um basically was the chauffeur, took all the higher ups to where they needed to go, and things of that sort. And he said one particular seemed to be average day on the base. Uh, a call that came out kind of over the you know communication system was, if you lived on the base, then you everybody was instructed to go into the barracks, close off the windows, and just wait for further instructions. If you didn't live on the base. Go home. Well, come to find out, uh, since of his job title, it really didn't affect him quite as much with those orders, and he said he actually witnessed a UFO land on the runway.
2: Whoa!
3: It it landed. Uh, He was not close to it as far as being able to really pick out, you know, fine detail, but it seemed to be from his description like your typical 1950s flying saucer, I mean, you know, just your sci-fi type silver metallic disc. He said. Then uh, some higher-ups that he was not even familiar with got to the object fairly quick and took it. What appeared to be to an underground location, and it was never heard of or spoke from, spoke about ever since. What year was this? And that. Uh, I'm not exactly certain Uh, it would have had to have been late 50s early 60s from my best recollection his you know memory is still very good but as far as picking out exact dates like that since he was in for so long was very tricky but what made this extremely odd even to me was after he was out of the military I uh, tried to find his service records and I've got a couple photos, one of his unit and one of just him by itself. And from all the requests and things that I made, uh all pointed back to his unit never existed. What? So that's very odd to me that and I had all of his information and you know, social security numbers, everything they needed to fill out those requests, and it all came back to the same answer that It didn't happen. You know, he was not there. And he spent 19 years there. So
2: I see why you became very interested in this as a topic. That is a puzzle. Did you say he was at a base? Was it there in Pickaway County?
3: Correct. It was just north. I mean, it's still there today. It's uh, Rickenbacker Air Force Base. It's uh, the 121st uh, Refueling Wing is what's currently there, and it's also a small uh, public airport. But at that particular time it was called Lockburn Air Base, but still same exact uh, location. They changed the name after the fact because of uh Eddie Rickenbacker, the famous uh pilot from World War Two. Yeah. Which also oh. he which he also had a uh huge interest in UFOs as well, so it all works together.
2: It all works together. Well, if I had a grandpa tell me that story, I probably would have become obsessed with UFOs. That's but my crazy. area
3: my area of Pickaway County, though, is actually uh, the most known uh, for UFO sightings in the state since they've kept reports, and has actually been narrowed to one stretch of road about seven miles north of me.
2: <laughs> Why would it be concentrated in that area? Is there anything going on there that might account for it?
3: I yes, there is. Uh, the I don't know all of the individual reports because there's been quite a few but there are at least three uh, military bases that intersect right there with our flight paths and where they train, and so I think that may have a lot to do with it.
2: Well, this would be a good time to bring up your Central Ohio UFO Reporting Center. Now, you've got a Facebook page and a website, www.centralohiouforeportingcenter.us. Where people in that area can uh, report strange phenomenon, and then you go out and try to get an answer for them. And I, I can see why that would center in that area because you probably get a lot of air traffic. How does that? Why did you start that? And, and how does the whole system work?
3: Well, first off, I want to clear a little thing up, and I make sure I make this clear to everybody I deal with the name yes central ohio ufo reporting center cuz obviously that's where i'm located but i actually do investigation worldwide oh wow okay any country any anywhere canada australia i've done stuff in the uk uh any states so if anybody that happens to be listening is from anywhere then you know get in touch uh, because i have contacts that are in different parts of the world that can help me out as far as finding information because I'm not going to be as aware of all the different news outlets and things where things could be picked up in foreign countries but by having contacts in some of those countries and familiar with it it makes it a lot better for me
2: what kind of of reports do you typically get are they you know strange lights in the sky kind of
3: reports uh, strange lights in the sky, uh, sonic booms, uh, just a v- very wide variety. I've got older cases that date, you know, people have reported that happened back in the seventies, which were extremely interesting. I had just got one of those within the last few weeks and it was on a totally unrelated uh, thing, but UFOs came up in the subject and come to find out the night that that lady had saw her craft was the biggest wave of sightings in Ohio history. Uh, For example, Franklin County, which is the capital, their sheriff's department got 150 calls in one night. They were hiring extra staff just to man phones to take all the reports. And it was several states.
2: So would you say 90% or more of the reports that you get, you're able to solve with a perfectly reasonable answer, like a plane?
3: Yes. Other than the case that I had, a couple cases I had just received, one was the Sonic Boom case, which was very interesting. It was heard over five states at the same time. And one that I'm currently uh, wrapping up, which I'll never be able to confirm the answer on it. I think it was some military testing. But other than those two recent ones, every other report that's been sent in to me, as long as the reports happen within 30 days of me receiving it, I've been able to solve it with 100% proof. So that's a pretty decent track record, I think. And it shows it tells
2: me that you are trying very hard to be very objective in your investigation and and that means a lot and I I think I want to put that objective training that you've got to work here on hangar 18. So, put on your investigation cap. You've heard the story part of our episode. Tell us what you think about the evidence we've reported in this episode. How strong
3: is it? I think the evidence is quite strong. And I've had an interest in definitely the Wright-Patterson, Hangar 18, Roswell thing for years anyway. Because my little town here, which is Circleville, we've got... I don't know, maybe 14,000 people that live here, we have a direct connection with the Roswell crash.
2: What's that? So,
3: right, uh, originally, which I think you've even heard the audio, I've got it on my website, uh, when uh, the original radio broadcast come out, and they admitted, you know, they had a flying disc, it was being transported to Wright-Patterson, and they had the whole story. Well, during that same time, There were numerous weather balloons and even a boxed kite that farmers around the area here had found and turned into the local sheriff's department. And with the weather balloon, when it was in the air, it looks like a flying disc. It looks like some sort of a disc at the base. And that story made national attention. But as soon as those particular case uh, stories about the boxed kite and the weather balloon kind of hit the news wires. That's when the Air Force and everybody came back in and changed their story, and went to weather balloon and even said box kite in their uh, when they retracted their story. So that is our direct connection. It's been, of course, you can't really prove it, but it's been speculated ever since that this is where the military got the something to change their story with. They needed something. And this is what they went with because it was so many people and it made it seem plausible because there were numerous, like I said, people here locally that was finding these uh, objects. But at the same time, those farmers and, you know, just average ordinary people, most of them knew what these things were when they found it. They just turned it in because they figured somebody, whoever released these objects, would want the information, you know, if it, Helped them in their research, you know, the weather departments or whoever. So they knew what they were when they turned them in. Yeah. So to come and for that Air Force to an army and all of them to not recognize a weather balloon immediately is very skeptical when you've got some, I don't want to say uneducated, but just common, normal farmers and, you know, individuals that recognize what it was right off the bat.
2: The rancher um, outside of New Roswell who had found um, some of that crash debris on his site, I I found him giving an interview and telling a reporter that he has found weather balloons on his property before and he knew what they were, but what he found on this day was not that. And I guess that struck me because I thought, why would you lie about it if it was? I mean, it, it didn't seem like there would be any reason for him to go out of his way and report this debris if it was yet just another balloon like he had found before. So I see what you're saying, and I think the rancher and and Roswell kind of proved your point. I mean, what would be the point of lying about it when you know what that debris looks like and you found it before?
0: to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
3: Exactly. And the weather balloon, you know, story even kind of ties in more modern with my investigating. Now nobody's mentioning weather balloon, but now the story's always drone. The drone is like the modern-day weather balloon now. And this also goes back to when I was younger. And I wish I could go back and pay more attention, but I was a kid, so it's kind of how it is. But I was in scout, Boy Scouts, and our scout leaders, both of them, were in the Air Force. And I remember one particular uh, scout meeting we had, our scoutmaster's brother had come in, and he was in the Air Force station at Wright-Patterson and actually told us that that was part of his job there was he cataloged the Roswell crash, the bodies, and every bit of it. He directly handled it. He said it was nothing uncommon to walk through some of those passages and somebody be wheeling a cart through and it would have a an alien body in it or something. He said that was just a, a common thing that he really didn't pay much attention to when you was in that part of the base.
2: <laughs> That's wild. So, you know, we had... Two, not one, but two first-hand witnesses to the Roswell event. We've got the Lieutenant Hot, who was the Roswell Army Airfield public relations guy, who said he saw the corpse, and then Major Jesse Marcel, the security head, who was first on the site of the the crash debris at the ranch. And, I mean, these guys are on record about what happened. They're literally on video or in print explaining what they know not one but two of them and yet others have gone on out of their way to try to discredit them both saying they had reputations for lying that they only shared what they knew when they were old men and their minds weren't right anymore i mean it's just hard for me to get past the fact that that there were two firsthand witnesses to the to this event i mean who do we believe
3: I, I honestly think that, you know, after the fact that later on, I think they were actually being more truthful because I could imagine, you know, that would take a toll on you, you know, physically, mentally, and everything else trying to hold in that big of a thing, you know, for the rest of your life. And you get to a point that you hit a certain age and you feel, well, what can they do to me at this point? Absolutely. You know, there's really, there's the intimidation and all of that wears off. Some of them have even waited you know, maybe they'll talk now because they've outlived their spouse. They don't really have much of a family left, so they don't have to worry about intimidation of their family. Because that's the biggest reason a lot of them said they never talked before is they didn't care what happened to them. They cared about their kids and their wife, and a lot of those people were intimidated as well.
2: Well, and then we have this... And then we have this Air Force pilot, Marion Magruder, who reportedly told his son about seeing one of the aliens in Dayton while it was still alive, even. And, of course, this is secondhand now because we don't have Marion Magruder on record. We have his son, um, and that's the one that we would have to take the word of. How do you judge that kind of evidence? I mean it's it's one step removed from being the person who had seen everything. Um do you do you believe his son is is that believable to you? Do we have to be more skeptical about that second hand evidence? What do you think?
3: I would believe it take it with a grain of salt. Usually that type of evidence starts off with some truth to it but we've all heard stories through our families that you find out later on has been exaggerated or like the game they used to play as kids telephone. It starts off accurate, but by the time it's at the end of the line, it's completely changed.
2: Right. I remember it well.
3: So so it's got some truth to it, but you have to, like I said, take that with a grain of salt and try to find outside sources to support that evidence, which makes it very tricky doing that in and of itself, is not as difficult for an investigator, but doing it in such a way that you're not insulting the witness's son or family. You don't want them to think that, you know, you're not believing them or that, oh, the story's a lie, then you insult a bunch of people. And that's something I try my best to avoid at all costs when I'm doing an investigation. Because you really got to watch people's feelings. I mean, everybody's on edge anyway, just for the fact that they finally got the courage to report something. That's a big step. And it's, you really want to, you know, walk on eggshells as much as possible.
2: William, I've got one final question for you. You know, if these stories were true, I don't understand the need to deny them. You know, maybe back in the 40s or 50s when everyone was nervous about the Cold War and people just in general weren't very worldly, maybe there was an argument to be made for concealing these things. But today, we just don't live in a culture where people are likely to jump off the building out of fear that there might be an alien on the planet. I mean, between technology, video games, horror movies, just the internet. I mean, everybody carries the world in their pocket on a cell phone you know the bar for shocking us is way too high so I can what get your answer. go ahead answer why why I, is the government still I've
3: keeping this secret we've seen this to happen more than once and the main reason is the US government number 1 because every other government around the world from european russian all of them have at one time or another threatened to release all their ufo documents but the United States stops it every time, whether it be sanctions or threatening them with something until they calm down. And the number one reason, and I've been told this by even some military individuals, they agreed with me, that if the U.S. government comes out today and admits anything to this, then we will no longer be the strongest superpower around. Nobody will. Top dog status will be gone. Because there will finally be something out there that none of us can control. And that's the number one reason. It has nothing to do with panic. It's all about power. Right now, in one form or another, every person in the world is directly or indirectly affected by the actions of the U.S. government. Whether it be, like I say, sanctions or whatever. Uh, but if that were to happen, you know, we wouldn't matter anymore. And they would give up every bit of that power, be like the king, you know, walking off the throne, you know, nobody going to pay attention to us. Oh, you're not the big thing to worry about anymore. So you don't matter. And that's the number one.
2: Well, William, that is not something I had considered at all. So I think you've given us something to think about. Well, listen, hey, it's been great fun having you on this episode. Again, listeners, you can find the Central Ohio UFO Reporting Center on Facebook and its own website. And as William said, he's not concentrating on just Central Ohio. Uh, Anywhere in Ohio and beyond, you can report to him and he's going to look into it. And William, I think you made it kind of clear. It doesn't have to be a new sighting or a recent sighting. You're even looking at sightings, trying to explain sightings from years or even decades ago, right?
3: Correct. Uh, Some, if the person wants me to, then I will definitely look into older cases. But the main reason is I like to put them in my archives. So if I get a recent sighting, maybe I can use some of the older stuff as comparisons. Things And one thing I want to mention too, as far as the reporting center goes Uh, Every report that I get, I put on the website, but I guarantee to everybody that it's 100% confidential. Other than a city, state, and your report, you know, but I take out all personal info. That's why my actual form you would fill out has all of the extra personal stuff separated from the actual description of the event. I want people to be able to read your event, but they don't need to know who you are or any personal info whatsoever. And if you go to my website, again, which is centralohiouforeportingcenter.us, at the bottom of the homepage, there is two uh, icons, and one will take you to my Facebook uh, page, and the other will take you to my newly formed YouTube channel, where I upload uh, some stuff concerning investigations I've got a couple videos I've made on actually how to train yourself to be a good witness. Um, a video that's actually pretty interesting, where people that were in college studying a fire science degree, uh, there's actually a chapter in their textbook on what to do for a UFO crash if you're a firefighter. And that's a government textbook. Oh, for heaven's so sake. Ch- and I got the chance to uh, talk to the guy that wrote the book so out of the University of Cincinnati. So that video is there. And any podcast that I'm directly on, then I'll put on my YouTube channel as well so people can listen to those. But I make sure that everybody has a chance to find where they can listen to all the podcasts from that particular show. And the one I'm normally on is Paranormal Road, which you can find them on either Facebook or uh, Podbean or any, or iTunes and download the podcast there But I appreciate the opportunity for uh, letting me come on the show. I'm glad you
2: mentioned Paranormal Road because we've got a little more to tell our listeners about that. So give this a listen.
3: Are you into the dog man? How about coast? Or maybe UFOs? If you're into the paranormal, don't miss Paranormal Road podcast on iTunes and Podbean. Each week, Randy and I will talk about the strange, the weird, the unusual, and the unexplained. We don't claim to be experts, folks, but we will have a lot of guests on our show that can certainly give you a lot of insight and make you think twice about the reality of this world in which we live. Don't miss Paranormal Road. Check it out today on Podbean and iTunes.
1: That's it for tonight, campers. Stop by our website, ohiomysteries.com, for photos, links, news clippings, and more for this and every Ohio Mystery episode. So before we part, Paula, how about a little bit more info on our featured musical artist, New Moons?
2: I'd love to tell you more about them, Steve.
1: New Moons is an indie rock band
2: from Cincinnati, Ohio, made up of Curtis Dressman on guitars, keyboard, and vocals, Tom Dressman on bass, and Zach Howard on drums. You can find them all over social media. If you're on Facebook, Spotify, YouTube, Instagram, or just go to their website, newmoons.net. That's a net there, not a com. Newmoons.net. Newmoons.net. And if you're lucky enough to be in the Cincinnati area this month, you can also go check them out in person. You'll find them May 10 at Lucius Q in Cincinnati. May 25th in Louisville, Kentucky at the Mag Bar. And June 1 at Burkus Brewery in Ludlow, Kentucky. Now, the band is working on a new album to be released this year, and they have plans to release their first single from that album real soon. But for now, we're going to play for you the song we sampled at the start of the podcast, You Don't Need to Know Me.
1: So relax, turn up the volume, and enjoy yet another wonderful musical talent from the Buckeye State. Here's You Don't Need to Know Me by New Moons, and we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio Mystery.